includes some mentions of hell, Hades, and things like that. And so I thought I'd order two second-hand copies of a book called Erasing Hell by Francis Chan. Um, and those are now available to borrow from our lending library, Erasing Hell by Francis Chan. It's an honest look at the hard doctrine of hell. It was written in response to the writings of people like Rob Bell and Steve Chalk who want to erase hell. They want to take it off the picture. I know we don't believe that anymore. No. But, uh, this takes an honest look at the subject but comes down with saying, but that's actually what Jesus said, therefore we need to, to leave it. But it's, it doesn't dodge the issue that it is a hard subject. And it's, I, I, I think it's a good book for that, on that basis. So if you want a copy to borrow, take it, sign it out, bring it back when you've read it. There are some stickers on the front to remind you this belongs here when you've read it, okay? Um, but those are available to help you to follow through some more. Um, we're working through Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 18, uh, the Christian warfare, um, our battle, our constant fight for faith, and the battle for our mind, because every, every struggle is really a mental struggle. We fight to believe, to trust, to obey. We fight to, to throw away the uh, foolish ideas of this world. And uh, let's pray as we get into this. Father... Please come and strengthen our hearts, our minds today. Scripture says the entrance of your word brings light, and I pray for light to go on, to light up in our thoughts and our hearts today, that we see things and we get it, and it reshapes the way we live, for we want to live lives that are worthy of our calling as the children of God. Amen. I mentioned last week a quotation. I put it in the newsletter. Uh, a few people liked it when I said it. You might like to see it here visually. The enemy is not fighting you because you're weak. The enemy is fighting you because you have a purpose. He resists and opposes us because we are the children of the Most High. That is to say, we who believe as are Christians. We're his image bearers, his holy ones, his treasures. He hates men, but he hates... God even more, and therefore when God identifies himself with us and we with him, where is where the objects of the devil's uh, hatred. Let's read again these verses from Ephesians 6. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, just ordinary people but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. That's the verse we're most looking at today. Stand, sorry, verse 13, this is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, three times stand in those verses. With truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it, you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Flaming arrows, in Old Testament language, are lies, accusations. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. And stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. 
So far, we've worked through in four weeks, but no, not four continual weeks because there's some breaks in between, our battle, our strength, and last week, our enemies. We're still not moving on from verse 12 today. There are two key phrases here. Wrestling, our battle, or we wrestle, literally, in the King James says, we wrestle, and heavenly places. And in both times, it's good to track a word or a phrase through from the beginning of the Bible. You don't have to read all the way through and search for hours and hours to find them. You can use nowadays, uh, in the old days we had a printed concordance. You could look up the same word or phrase and find it throughout the Bible. Nowadays you can do it with a Bible app on your, on, on your smartphone. You can look for the word wrestle. You can look for the word prayer. You can, and follow it through. So those words and phrases have what I call, this is my term, a currency. You know, we, you, you heard the expression to coin a phrase. And you use it when you're not really coining it. Someone else already coined it. You know, it, it, it you know, someone else already used that, but you're saying to, to borrow a phrase. To coin a phrase is to make it, to give it meaning. And from then on, it has that meaning. And so in the Bible, you find that words or expressions are coined. They have, they're set up and they track through. They don't change meaning. So if we see then how they're used by later writers, including the Lord Jesus himself, who, who quoted from the Old Testament, and particularly the books of Moses and the prophets, again and again and again. So let's start with this word, heaven, or heavenly places. Ah, stay away to heaven. Now don't sting that again. We come to the phrase, in the heavens. And when we talk about heaven, many people think about clouds and they think about angels and they think about gates, pearly or otherwise, Peter with a book or not. You know, lots of jokes about the man who goes out of the gates of heaven and all the rest of the thing. But listen, do you remember the angels sang when Jesus was born, glory to God in the highest heaven? The crowds, when Jesus went into Jerusalem, shouted Hosanna in the highest heaven. The Hebrews spoke of three heavens, a three-tiered universe. They talked about uh, the sky, the air, the atmosphere, the place, the parts where we see clouds, where birds fly, where airplanes fly, what's around the earth, the, uh, the, the earth's atmosphere. They talked about the heavens, meaning the sun, the moon, the stars, the cosmos, the things that we can see out there and explore. I mean, that is immense, isn't it? Huge. But then that's the second heaven or heavens. The third heaven is where God is. And that is beyond description. You can't measure that in distance. No no amount of light years can measure how great God is. It's his throne. It's his habitation. And so we come to a Greek word. I've got this in wrong order. The Paul uses here and uses throughout... Uh, his letters, Eporanus, all right? Oranus is the heavens. It could mean the sky, it could mean the cosmos. But Eporanus is the highest heaven. The highest heaven, the third heaven. Paul writes about a visit, sorry, going too fast, to the third heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, I haven't put this on the screen. He writes this, and he's talking about himself, but in a second, in a third person way. He's not, he doesn't want to say this was me, so he's kind of setting it. I knew someone. I know a man in Christ who was caught up into, the, listen to this, the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. In other words, whether he died or not, I'm not sure. Paul was left for dead when he was stoned on one occasion. This may have been when this happened. 
I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. Now he's just said third heaven. Now he says paradise. Same thing. He heard inexpressible words which a man is not allowed to speak. Okay? Now it was because of this revelation that Paul was given, he says in the next few verses, a thorn in the flesh, a physical affliction, so that in his weakness he relied on the strength of the Lord. Now, people talk about the seven heavens. That's mythology. That's, that, that, that's, that's Greek mythology or maybe uh, 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 philosophy, Roman. Actually, it crept into, into Islam as well, seven heavens. The Bible does not speak of seven heavens. There are three, and the highest heaven is the throne of God. The third heaven. When we as Christians speak about heaven, we generally mean that presence of God enthroned in glory, the Most High. And that's beyond all measure and distance. And yes, when a Christian dies, they do go to heaven. For they go to be with the Lord Jesus, just as he promised, and where he is, they are. And they there await in the presence of the Lord the resurrection from the dead on the last day. So that's explaining a little bit about the heaven that we mean by heavenly places. But while we're here, we need to mention about hell and Hades and Sheol as well. Let me clear up a few things about this, following on from last week too. Because this is about the, the resurrection and victory of Jesus. Yes. The death, I should say, resurrection and victory of Jesus. It changed things. It's part of his victory. There are some words in the Bible, Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament, that talk about uh, 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 death and what happens after death. And our problem is most, almost all of our English versions are really unhelpful because they take a whole string of words, six words, and put the hell against all of them. And that's very confusing because they're not the same thing. All right? So let's ignore that for a moment. Let's go back to the Hebrew and the Greek. Hebrew, if you're dead, under the Old Testament, you went to Sheol, whether you were a righteous person or not. Sheol, the realm of the dead. And uh, in Greek, that became Hades, the realm of the dead. There are some, one or two other words as well, like Abaddon, which seems to be the deepest part of Sheol, which is full of darkness and judgment and torment. And Jesus talked about future hell, Gehenna, which again is a place of darkness and fiery judgment. There are other words as well, like, that come into it, which seem to refer to fallen angels being imprisoned, but I'm not going to trouble you with that this morning. When the Lord Jesus and the New Testament writers use the word Hades, they do so referring back to the Hebrew word Sheol. They were not importing all that the Greeks and the Romans said about the underworld. All right? We're not, it's not adding that into the Bible that they use the Greek word. It's a mistake to say this is what the Greeks understood, we saw what the Romans understood, and therefore we need to understand that's what is meant by Hades. No, they meant just replacing Sheol with Hades, Greek Hebrew with Greek. Um, Hades was the place that all the dead went, a place of waiting for resurrection and judgment day, but the righteous in Sheol were at peace, sharing the company of the saints, but the wicked waited in fear and torment for the day of judgment. You see in the Old Testament that Samuel, when he died, went to Sheol. David expected when he died he would go to Sheol, but he knew that the Lord would raise him from the dead. That's exactly the situation that Jesus picks up on in the story he tells about a certain rich man and a beggar called Lazarus, Luke 16. 
an unnamed rich man and a beggar called Lazarus who sat at his gate, both died. The rich man woke up in Sheol, Hades, and was in torment, in fear. But Lazarus was dining with Abraham. Now it says he was in Abraham's bosom. Now, you understand the way they eat in those days? They lay down, and if you were privileged, you rested your head on someone else's chest, and you dipped your bread and got the meat from the low table that was in front of you. The Lazarus, the beggar, is leaning on Abraham having a meal. But the rich man is in torment. There was a great gulf between them. That story does not portray the eternal situation at all because the rich man's brothers were still alive on earth and he begged that Lazarus be sent back to talk to them. The point, the punchline of Jesus' story is if they don't believe the truth, they won't believe it even if or when someone rises from the dead. The Jewish teachers believed that when Messiah came, he would raise the dead, bring the righteous out of waiting in comfort, peace, in Sheol, into the presence of God, into paradise. But the wicked, when Messiah came, would be assigned to eternal fire. They were right about those things generally, but wrong about timing. They didn't foresee how Jesus would come, the Messiah would come, and how he would work these things through. Some of those great things were accomplished in Jesus' first coming and in his life and death and resurrection and ascension. But some happen at his second coming, at his return. But there are scriptures that seem to point to the fact that the Lord Jesus liberated the souls of the saints from Sheol, Hades, through his defeat of death and Hades. And one glimpse of that is that one of the signs that happened the minute that Jesus died on the cross, there were earthquakes, the toilet, the veil, the temple was rent into. If you read Matthew, it says, some of the graves of the righteous were opened and they rose up and walked into the city. The moment Jesus died, resurrection began to break out. Isn't that interesting? I didn't put it in my notes, but can you walk with me a moment? What is it that Jesus said to the man on the cross who believed in him? Exactly. Not in the realm of the dead, but in the presence of God. When... Jesus died, he defeated death. Through death, he defeated death. He changed the order of things. So check this out. Revelation 1, verse 18. John appears to his dear friend and disciple, John. Sorry, Jesus appears to his dear friend and disciple, John, the Lord of Patmos. And he's introducing him. He's clothed in glory. John is on his face like a dead man. Just, I'm dead. I'm gone, you know. Because Jesus is appearing in all his splendor, all his glory, or at least enough that John wasn't blown away by it. This is how Jesus introduces himself. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Older English versions say health. Not helpful. This is the key of Hades, the realm of the dead. Jesus, I said last week, when Jesus said, the gates of death will not prevent me, or the gates of hell, in some versions, will not prevent me, building my church. What did Jesus do? He rose from the dead. He burst the gates of hell, of Hades. Not a future hell, not a final hell, but of the being dead. Having overcome death through death, Jesus now has authority. That's what the keys of means, over death and Hades. They're in his power. Not in the power of the devil. They're in Jesus' power. In the New Testament, no believer goes down in death 
anywhere. They go up to the Lord. When our time comes to die, we will be absent from the body, but present with the Lord. That is how Jesus promises, and he does, he who believes in me will never die. Because we go to him. We live in his presence, waiting for a resurrection body. But we are living people, living souls in his presence. So, so much about hell and people. What about the devil and demons? Well, I said to you last week, let me say it again. There is not one scripture that identifies the devil as being in hell now as his home and headquarters. Not one. Now, he might like us to imagine that because it makes him have the power of something over which he has no power. The power of death and of Hades and of future punishment is in the hands of Jesus, not the devil. Fiery, eternal hell is prepared for Satan and the fallen angels, and they will be thrown there. When Jesus appears the last day, one old Puritan writer says, it'll be like a man who swats a gnat. There's no, there's no effort in the throwing, folks. You know, It's a wave of the finger. And they're thrown there. As someone so helpfully summed up for me last Sunday's sermon, both heaven and hell are the Lord's. They're in his authority. The place of Satan's activities is in the earth and in the air, as we'll see in a minute. And since he and the demons with him are spirits, they can move around this planet without needing any form of transport, like you and I. Let's come back to Ephesians 6.2. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So, I could say this at a great length, I'm trying not to... The question Ephesians 6 poses to anybody reading most English versions is this. Are the wicked authorities in the highest heaven or do we wrestle in the highest heaven against them? The track to understanding this verse is laid out in what goes before it by comparison to the rest of Scripture. Let's just not look at all the investment. Let's just look at Ephesians. Let's go back to chapter 1 where it says, this is tracking this word, this Greek word, heavenless, in the highest heaven, eporanus, highest heaven. I've got to read what's on the screen, rather, what I remember. Praise the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. So literally, this, the word order is different. It's in the heaven of heavens in Christ. In the highest heaven in Christ. We are blessed. We have covenant. Martin, Martin. Colin's talking about covenant next week. We are, have covenant with God the Father through Jesus in the highest heaven. That's where it happens. It's not something we work out on earth. It's done for us and accomplished, and it's, 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 it's written up there. It operates from there in the heaven of heavens. Uh, then in chapter 1, verse 20, God demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand, where? In the highest heaven, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. What we read in Ephesians 12, the powers and the rulers and so on, and whether they're human or demonic, Jesus is seated in the heaven of heavens far above all of that. They don't contend with him there. He's far above them there. And every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then chapter 2, verse 6. We have been raised together with Christ Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places, in the highest heaven. Well, that's exalted, isn't it? 
Wow. Come up higher? You can't go any higher than that. So that in the coming ages, God might display the riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 3, God's wisdom is made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. God's wisdom is made in the heavens through the church to the rulers and authorities. The rulers and authorities don't have to be in the heavens to get that. Let me explain to you. You see, laws are published in the capital city, which in our case is, is London, specifically the Palace of Westminster. Or they're signed off on the Queen's desk. She signs them with a fountain pen and then they become law. Those laws, those laws, they're now and they're published out from where they're formed. God's wisdom is published from heaven through the church and the powers and the authorities have to take note. That's the picture. The command goes out. It's published. So the wisdom of God is made known. And then we come to this verse, Ephesians 6, verse 12. Our battle isn't against, or we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, will powers of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So following through on what we've read in Ephesians, the heaven of heavens is where Christ is seated, the right hand of God, where our blessing in Christ is secured, where we're seated with him, where the wisdom of God is published to the authorities, both human and demonic, through the church, and where our contest with evil powers is being pursued. So let's look again at Ephesians 6 verse 12. And we connect the word wrestle with in the heavens. For we wrestle, and then like paragraph or brackets, not against flesh and blood, not against, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. We wrestle in the heavens against those things. And you think, oh, David, you're making it up. Let me tell you this. I've researched this well. And the further you go back in church history, the more people actually say that's how they understand it. The Greek fathers, the men who speak, spoke and taught and wrote in Greek in the first four or five hundred years of the church, many of them understand that verse that way. So I didn't make this up. I didn't discover it. I just found out what common sense would tell you. If you understand what, what has been said about the heavenly places and the rest of Ephesians, you will not imagine that demons are running around in the heavenly places causing trouble. It, it just doesn't add up. But we wrestle in the heavenly places. So how does that work, David? Well... I gave you a clue last week. Do you remember? I oh, know you have. Okay. Why don't you take a deep breath? You haven't a great run to keep up with me. Take a deep breath. Okay. Here's the punchline. There's a big difference between the war zone and the war room. There's a big difference between being in a war zone and a war room. We'll come back to that in a moment. Just want to drop it in your thinking again. Let's think about wrestling. There's a currency to the idea or the, the, the phrase of wrestling. It begins way back in the Old Testament. It carries on through. I'm going to give you just a couple here. And ladies, it starts with a woman. This wrestling, that kind of wrestling, wrestling, starts with a woman. Her name is Rachel. She was one of Jacob's wives, wasn't she? Rachel said, in my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister and one. She had a child. And she named the child Naphtali. In my wrestlings with God, 
I've wrestled with my sister and won. That's the first time that kind of wrestling is mentioned in the Bible. Do you get it? The currency? She prayed and sought God while she was, at the same time, contending with her sister. She wrestled with God and won her, won her contention with her sister. Now, we could, we could criticize the, the sisterly relationship there and how Jacob himself was handling it too. But the point is, she wrestled with God. Encourage you, ladies? Good. So then there's Jacob himself. A little later on, Genesis 32. Jacob is on his way to encounter his brother Esau. He hasn't seen him for years. and Esau would have good reason to take his sword out and cut his head off. And Jacob really stitched him up. And Jacob's afraid of seeing his brother Esau, and he knows he's going to confront him in the next day or so. And so he sends all his people over a particular brook, river, wives, family, kids, animals, servants, the lot. And he stays on that side of the brook and stays there all night. Here it is, Genesis 32. Jacob was left alone. And a man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Oh, who is this person that is wrestling? What's your name? The man said, Jacob, he replied. Now Jacob means twister, cheat. It's a bit of an admission to say that's who I am, isn't it? The man replied, your name will no longer be Jacob. It will be Israel, prince of God or prince with God. Because you've struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Get it? You have struggled, wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And some versions have, why do you ask my name? It's too wonderful. And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, and I have been delivered. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. <coughs> Having wrestled with God, Jacob found that God had so changed Esau's heart when he saw him, he didn't have to fight his brother at all. Esau was forgiving towards him. Remarkable act of grace on God's part in Esau. But Jacob wrestled with God because he was going to have to wrestle, he thought, with Esau. Then we come to, back to our verse, Our battle is we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Because when we've wrestled with God, then we can deal with them. That's the way that wrestling works in the Bible. Here's a similar statement by Paul writing in Colossians. Paphras, who is one of you, one of the Colossae, a slave of Christ, Jesus, greets you. He is always contending, that's the same word there, striving, fighting, struggling, for you in his prayers. He wrestles in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything. God wills. Let me point this out to you. I talked about it last week. Jesus resisted the devil in the wilderness. Just quoted back scripture and told him to go away. But in Gethsemane, before going to the cross, Jesus wrestled in prayer for hours. 
He wrestled in prayer. In fact, it brought out drops of blood on his forehead. He was in such a struggle. The, the word there in, is one we get the word agony from. What did he wrestle in prayer about? To accept this cup from the Father, to have the sins of the world laid upon him and to go to the cross. So wrestling in Scripture relates to prayer. Now, Jacob wrestled God. Okay, but let me just suggest to you that our, our wrestling in prayer is not so much wrestling with God as wrestling before God. We're not trying to prize open his hands or argue him activity. We're not trying to persuade an unwilling father. He gives good things to those who ask him. But we wrestle with ourselves, our lack of faith, of trust and obedience. We wrestle until we can trust him and do what he's asked us to do until we can face the problem. We can go and face our Esau or deal with our Leah, our sister. Because we've got our answer, our help, our strength from God. We wrestle with God so that we can then deal with the situation. And if I may say so again, that's how... That's exactly what Jesus was doing in Gethsemane. Would he accept the cup of sin and suffering and sorrow? He wrestled to submit himself to the will, his will to the Father's. And having come to that determination in his praying, having stated his faith and obedient submission, he stood up and walked to his destiny. Please read it again in Matthew or Mark or Luke. In prayer, we enter the throne room of God. Jeremiah, we're reading Jeremiah, we're reading stuff. A throne of glory on higher from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. We enter into the throne room of God when we pray. So let me come back to that statement. There's a great difference between a war zone and a war room. The war zone is the place of bombs and bullets and blood. But the war room is the place where decisions are made that change the war where orders are given that direct the fight. There's a place I'd like to go and see in London. It's called Churchill's War Rooms in Westminster. And until they put a big, kind of nice entrance there on it, you couldn't even know it was there. There was just a sort of anonymous pair of doors down by the side of a set of steps. But people would go down there in the war, bomb-proof. And from there, they would direct the whole of the Second World War. In fact, when the Americans came into the war, there were American generals in the war room, and it was being directed still from the war room, not from Washington. And within those rooms, there is a particular room, and that's it. It's very, very, uh, very tight. There are desks all around the edge and desks in the middle as well where people were writing notes. And people sat around that room, the RAF, the, the army, the navy, American generals, Churchill himself, foreign secretary, others. And they heard the news from the war zone, the front. And they made the decisions that directed the war. We, my brother and my sister, when we pray, enter God's war room. It's where the decisions are made. And if we've heard him, we can then go and do stuff or say stuff if it's appropriate because we've heard it in the war room. Let me offer you an illustration from the Old Testament. 
I'm going to read it to you, but I'm going to put a little picture up so you can do this. This is Exodus 17. Moses wrestles with prayer on a hillside while Joshua is fighting on the ground in the valley. Exodus 17. At Rephidim, Amalek, enemies to Israel, came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on the hillside with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, her, went to the top of the hill. Let me just stop there for a moment. There was, I said before, there was a lot of people who used to talk about, we're going up into the high places to cast down. You're not casting down from the high places. Demons don't live up there. But you are going up to the high places to pray. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek, the enemies, prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put, him un- put it under him. He sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So that day, Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord Yahweh then said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua, who would be his successor. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar there and named it, the Lord is my banner, a banner that you carry into battle. The Lord is my banner. And he said, indeed, my hand is lifted up towards the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with, from, with Amalek from generation to generation. Moses wasn't in the battle zone, but he was, in a sense, standing in the war room, making prayer and intercession that Joshua and the army would prevail. As he prayed, the battle was being won. And when he weakened, the battle was being lost. Now, we have one greater than Moses who stands and prays for us, haven't we? Yes? His name is? Jesus. Jesus. He's entered into the most holy place to use Old Testament language about the tabernacle and the temple. He makes intercession before the Father. But having made his request to the Father, he then issues his orders. The Lord Jesus then rules and reigns and commands what should happen. And we, according to what Ephesians is saying, have the privilege of being there with him. If we choose. We can engage in the war room to make our requests, but also to hear his instructions. And I would add to that too, to personally receive his supply. Grace, strength, wisdom, peace. To get the resources we need to go and do the battle with the Esau, the the Leah, the, the authorities, whatever it is. Some of us have seen a movie, The War Room, yeah? Anybody seen the movie? If you haven't got you still got it, Colin? You think so? All right, we'll have to buy another copy. It's a good movie. It's about a praying lady who teaches another lady to pray, and then the whole family become people who pray. They have a little room in the house, they call that the war room, but it's a picture of you going to God, you're going before God. Philippians 4, verse 6 says, Don't worry about anything. Just whistle and sing a song. No, no, no. This is not just cheer up, cheer up. You'll be all right. No. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, 
through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Of course, we live in the war zone too. We live in the place of blood and bullets. We deal with the opposition to us of our own flesh, our human nature, its fallen tendencies, its, it, 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 its twisted appetites, good appetites that have been perverted by sin. Uh, the world throwing its adver- advertisements and distractions and, and perversions and all sorts of stuff at, and before, behind that as well of the devil and demons too. Our instructions are clear in scriptures. Put on the full armor of God. Stand, resist, endure. Use the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, the word of God. We'll come back to those statements. But our battles are settled in the war room. As we pray and we receive from God mercy, wisdom, strength and peace. It's the lesson we see in Rachel. It's the lesson we see in Jacob, in Moses. And most significantly of all, it's the lesson we see in Jesus. He did this the night when he was betrayed. Before walking out to be greeted by Judas, the traitor. Jesus did this himself. He wrestled in prayer. In fact, as he wrestled in prayer three times, interestingly, he prayed three, and Paul says about his thorn in the flesh, he played three times. Jesus prayed three sessions prayer, probably an hour or more each. He got up and checked his disciples, and he said this to them. Because they were falling asleep. They were just weary. They were worn out. This, you know, don't, you know, don't you find stress tiring? Yes. These guys were stressed out. And as Jesus prayed, all they can do is sleep. They, they're, just, they're, they're beyond themselves. He wakes them up again and again and says, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation, into trial. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The capitalization is mine. I believe that's the Holy Spirit. It's nothing to do with your spirit being willing. The Holy Spirit is willing to strengthen you. But you need to ask. We don't have because we don't ask. Ask, then you will receive that your joy will be full, Jesus says. Ephesians 6, of course, teaches us about the armor of God and standing and resisting. And I'm going to spend one Sunday morning just on the shield of faith and another Sunday morning before Christmas just on the sword of spirit. But those statements are wrapped within this statement we track through today. We wrestle against these things in the heaven of heavens. Therefore, pray at all times with all prayer with the help of the Spirit. The church of Jesus used to know how to pray, but in recent decades has received teaching that would lead us not to pray. You don't need to pray, you just need to say it. You don't need to ask it, you need to command it. That kind of stuff. I wrote an article in Direction magazine, which was published earlier this year, about just that, this modern area of don't pray it, just say it. When Jesus again and again teaches us to pray, and praying means to ask, to ask. We used to accept the wisdom of such things. I'm going to go through these quickly, but you can have them if you like. You know, I can send them to you. John Wesley, 1700s. Prayer is where the action is. You can't do until you've prayed. And when you've prayed, then you can do. Another one of his as well. You work it out in prayer, then having prayed, you go and do what God's given you mm. with the strength that he's supplied to you and the wisdom that he's deposited in you. Prayer is where the action is. Another one that people often used to quote, 
But it's not fashionable now. Fight all your battles on your knees. In fact, another one says, when you're driven to your knees, you're in the right place to pray. <laughs> when life drives you to your knees, stop praying. How about this one? I saw this on a t-shirt. It's a big t-shirt thing. When God's warriors go down on their knees, the battle's not over. It's just begun. But to some people, that's old school. They've made a decision. They prefer prophesying over praying. But as I wrote in that article, quoting Jesus, you can't say in faith until you've prayed in faith. Until you've received a word from the Lord. Otherwise, it's just your word, not his. And don't imagine your words can't fall to the ground and not, nothing happen. Another one from Rick Warren. Satan tries to limit your praying because he knows your praying will limit him. What did Jesus say? Pray that you don't enter into trial. That your weak flesh is strengthened through the Spirit. There's much more to say about prayer, but the last verse of this passage, verse 18, brings us back to it in a few more weeks from now. I hope before Christmas. Let me remind you again of the pattern prayer that Jesus gave us. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really one for us disciples. You know it, don't you? Therefore you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honoured as holy. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And don't bring us into temptation, into trial, testing. But deliver us, literally it says, from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. We pray for the honour of his name. We pray for the advance of his kingdom. We pray for obedience to his will in us, in others, in our world. We pray that we be kept from trial and temptation and protected from the evil one. People talk about warfare praying. That's it right there. Amen. That's it. Oh, but I've got some good prayers I have. Oh, really? Oh, dear. Save me. To summarize what we've been saying and seeing here together today, and I'm amazed I've got through this this quickly. The scripture here is telling us we're in call to engage in prayer for the advance of the kingdom of Jesus. And I started out with, with, think, with saying this is like the people in Afghanistan or wherever are on the ground and, and they, make a, they make a radio call and they, come, they call in the, the RAF who come in and bomb the place and then they can go, no, we are not just squaddies on the ground calling for help from heaven. These scriptures tell us we can enter into heaven and find our answers from the Lord there. We enter into the throne room of God where Jesus is already making requests and issuing his commands. And we can stand with him or literally says seated with him. We even get to sit down to do this. What? We can find our answers and our resources and our help and our strength. How to deal with the muck and bullets that life often is. We find that in the presence of our God. We find it in his heart and ask help from his hand. 
We enter into the war room. And if that sounds too bold, you think I'm making it up. Let's go back to Hebrews 4 verse 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. What the older version says, in time of need. A whole lot of us have been in time of need. We've been feeling pressure. We've had difficulties to face. Our help comes from the Lord. Through one another, through scripture, but through prayer, direct access to go and get our help from the Lord. Where does that therefore take us? To the presence of God where we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who's already prayed for us. He's already praying for us. He's passed through the heavens and now appears before the throne of the Father making intercession for us. All that Paul has written about this heaven of heavens, third heaven, paradise, the presence and throne room of God leads us to this conclusion. It's where we may draw close to God and ask for and receive his grace, his strength, his mercy, his wisdom so that in the battle in the valley we can stand and resist and endure. We wrestle in the heaven of heavens against what's happening around us in this earth. Therefore, pray at all times. Amen. 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 That's poor. Okay. <laughs> Shall we pray? pray, Lord Jesus, that while I've said quite a bit and expanded quite a bit, I I pray that there will be right now those phrases, those nuggets that land in each of our hearts. We do believe that while we come for a meal from your word on a Sunday, there is a takeaway portion as well. (laughs) We go away with something that continues to nourish us, continues to turn our thoughts, our focus. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that according to your word, we will be reshaped in our thinking. There is a tendency to belittle prayer. And it's, it's in the church. Dear God, it's in the church. When we need to esteem this privilege we have, this access we have. So we're invited into your very throne room to make our requests and to receive from you. Oh God, help us not to belittle it. Help us to be aware of how great a privilege it is. And while it's wonderful that Jesus prays for us, he wants us to come and stand alongside him. And do our little bit of joining in too, so that we too have the privilege of seeing our prayers being answered around us, in us, in others, in our families, in our church, in our town or neighborhood. Oh, Jesus, your name be honored. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I just want to take a moment. Everybody's still got your heads bowed, I suppose. I want to take a moment to suggest to perhaps just one or two people here. 
it's time you stop fighting God off and wrestling yourself to trust him. Submitting yourself to him. Coming to a point of faith and obedience in Jesus. There's rest and security for those who trust him. And I can't promise any of that to those who don't. Why don't you confess today you need him? Jesus Christ. To be your king. To be the one who rescues you. To be the one who changes you and equips you to live a new life. Why don't you ask him to do that for you right now? Simple prayer. I'm not fussed by what word you use. They're really not that important. For he hears hearts. He answers intentions. Put your words together as best you can and ask him right now to come and take hold of you.